Please turn with me in your Bibles now to Job chapter 22. In our sermon series through Job this morning, we come to chapter 22. This is Eliphaz's third speech. Hear God's word from Job chapter 22, beginning at verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right, or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? Is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land, and the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore snares are all around you, and sudden terror overwhelms you. Or darkness, so that you cannot see, and a flood of water covers you. Is not God high in the heavens? See the highest stars, how lofty they are. But you say, what does God know? Can he judge through the deep darkness? Thick clouds veil him so that he does not see, and he walks on the vault of heaven. Will you keep to the old way that wicked men have trod? They were snatched away before their time. Their foundation was washed away. They said to God, depart from us, and what can the Almighty do to us? Yet he filled their houses with good things. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. The wicked see it and are glad. The innocent one mocks at them, saying, surely our adversaries are cut off, and what they left the fire has consumed. Agree with God and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Receive instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. If you remove injustice far from your tents, if you lay gold in the dust and gold of Ophir among the stones of the torrent bed, then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. For then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. You will make your prayer to him and he will hear you and you will pay your vows. You will decide on a matter and it will be established for you. And light will shine on your ways. For when they are humbled, you say, it is because of pride. But he saves the lowly. He delivers even the one who is not innocent, who will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. I remember some years ago attending a presbytery worship service that included a celebration of the Lord's Supper. And uh, one of the ministers led the service. He preached and then administered the supper. And later I was visiting with him, and all of a sudden he voiced concern over the fact that he had forgotten to fence the supper with a clear proclamation that the Lord's Supper was only for those who had faith in Jesus Christ while also calling those without faith to abstain. I hadn't really caught the fact that that had happened, but the expression that comes to mind as I think about what probably happened is that he had been wanting to avoid what we call preaching to the choir. And the idea is that those in the choir don't really need to hear what the preacher says, quite like the people in the pew. 
Um, the people in the choir are thought to be already committed believers. Um, that's often assumed, just like we might want to assume that everyone gathered at a presbytery meeting of ruling elders and pastors is saved. But that would be to make an, an assumption that not ought to be made. Um, scripture is clear. Jesus says, not everyone who says to him, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He says it won't matter that they can claim to prophesy in his name and cast out demons in his name and do mighty works all in his name. It's a sad reality that there are people who appear to be servants of Jesus Christ who are, in fact, workers of lawlessness. And the point is that even a group of elders and pastors need to hear the gospel, and even if it is only a reminder to be warned that the Lord's Supper is only for those who have a genuine faith that understands and embraces both the saving purpose of the Lord's death and the relationship of the Lord's Supper to it as symbolizing and bringing to remembrance the Lord's atoning sacrifice on the cross for sinners. So it's okay to preach to the choir. Uh, even if the choir believes the gospel, it's, it's good for us. It's good for them to be reminded. It's good for us to be reminded of our need for the Lord Jesus. And this is a fitting introduction here to chapter 22, I believe, because in this chapter, Eliphaz is actually preaching to the choir, though he doesn't think so. It's interesting to note that Eliphaz presents a fairly sound understanding of the gospel. If you can recall his two earlier speeches, as well as the speeches of Bildad and Zophar so far, it's really been unclear what exactly these men believe concerning the gospel, what level of understanding they actually have. At the very least, there, there have been up to this point very suspect remarks that have been made that lead us to desire clarification, because otherwise we wonder if his friends really understand the gospel of salvation as a work of God's grace apart from our works. For example, back in chapter 4, verse 17, Eliphaz raised these rhetorical questions. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? And you understand these are rhetorical questions where the expected answer is no. And so we wrestled with what Eliphaz meant. Is Eliphaz there claiming that man can never be in the right before God? Never pure? That would be a denial of justification by faith. Or is this Eliphaz's way of stating the doctrine of total depravity? If so, the emphasis would be on how man, how we cannot make ourselves right before God. Or is Eliphaz referring to man in this life, claiming that even a believer can never be perfect as long as he is on earth? Now, that particular understanding, I think, that uh, of the idea that a believer can never be perfect in this life is probably uh, what Eliphaz's concern is that, that he has, and, and uh, he wants Job to understand that we should expect to suffer. He should expect to suffer because we are not perfect in this life. And uh, though this understanding of suffering is incomplete, of course, that understanding of Eliphaz would be, is far better than uh, a denial of justification by faith. We hope that that is at least what Eliphaz is saying. But back in, in chapter 15, 14, 
Um, he, he made a very similar statement to what he made back in chapter 4. There in chapter 15, 14, Eliphaz in his second speech says, What is man that he can be pure? Or he who is born of woman that he can be righteous? And again, these words sound like uh, they could be a denial of justification by faith. And yet in the context, it seems that Eliphaz is making essentially the same point that we hope he was making in chapter 4, which is that because we never stop sinning in this life, it's impossible to be an innocent sufferer. Eliphaz is insisting that always, without fail, any suffering that we experience can be correlated to sin in our lives. I hope you can understand that that is not compatible with a complete understanding of the gospel. Uh, Eliphaz's view says that a believer remains subject to being punished under God's justice. His view, as best as we can understand it, is that there is forgiveness of our sins from God when we ask for it, but then as soon as we sin again, we once again become worthy of judgment, and we are to expect hardships until we, until we repent yet again, which sounds very much like the Arminian roller coaster of being in and out of justification and salvation. In contrast, the biblical view of justification by faith is that when you by faith repent of your sins and lay hold of the righteousness of Christ, you are forgiven once and for all. You never come again under God's wrath. Yes, there may be chastening, but then we have to face the question, is every hardship in life chastening for us as believers? Well, Eliphaz wants us to believe that every single sin brings forth God's chastening, if not his wrath. And while it could be argued that what Eliphaz is envisioning for the believer is chastening, which is grounded in love rather than wrath, yet his main point is that there is no such thing as suffering that is not grounded in God's justice. In some sense, God giving us what we deserve in, in, a, in a form of punishment. Whether believer or unbeliever, the only appropriate response to suffering is repentance. According to Eliphaz, that alone is what will turn God's frown into a smile. So his idea is that every day as we sin, suddenly God's frown comes upon us. If we repent, then it turns to a smile, and that goes back and forth on and on day after day. With chapter 22, we do have some hope that Eliphaz understands the gospel. Um, he rightly understands that always in the background of God's good news of salvation is the bad news of our sin and inability to save ourselves. And what Eliphaz presents in the second half of this chapter, beginning with verse 21, is a fairly solid presentation of the gospel, actually, though he still thinks that repentance will always result in a good earthly life. But focusing in on how Eliphaz begins and ends this chapter with good news, the first point of the sermon is going to be that, that very phrase, the good news. And in the middle of this chapter, we find Eliphaz preaching the good news to Job, although, um, you know, or I should say, as though he is an unbeliever. And uh, that section will be considered under the second point, the wrong audience. So we begin with the good news. Eliphaz begins his third response to Job there with rhetorical questions, verses 2 and 3. Can a man be profitable to God? 
Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right? Or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? Eliphaz is saying there is that this, the, the scale model of salvation doesn't work. So what's the scale model of salvation? Well, it's the view that God evaluates every person according to their works, essentially using a scale where the pan on one side contains all of their good works, the pan on the other side contains their sins, the one side is weighed against the other, and what is typically explained is that if your good works outweigh your sins, then you receive God's favor, while if your sins outweigh your good works, you will experience God's judgment. And if you think about it, what lies behind that whole model is the thinking that your good works can negate your sins and make you worthy of God's favor. Well, Eliphaz's opening words here do not line up with that way of thinking, which is great. Um, What Eliphaz is rightly saying is that our wisdom or our good works, they cannot make us worthy of God's favor. Reminded of the Lord's words in Luke chapter 17, verses 9 and 10, where the servant comes in from the field. And uh, the Lord puts it this way, does he, the master, thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Of course not, right? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And the main point is that if we obey God, We don't deserve thanks from God. We don't deserve him to say, good job, thank you for for doing that. We also don't deserve any favor from God because of our works. Our good works are not meritorious. We've not obligated God to bless us in any way. And for Eliphaz to say what he says here, it's great to hear, right? He's telling Job that even if Job has been good and and can point to a faithful, obedient life. That doesn't mean that God is impressed and is now obligated to give him a good life. But the fact that we continue to sin in this life um, because of that, and because that's a reality, um, and even if it were possible to pile up good works on the scale, good works don't negate evil ones. Uh, This truth is foundational to understanding the gospel Eliphaz is here probably accusing Job of holding to that scale model. Uh, The wording of verses 2 and 3 would fit the accusation that what Job has been trying to do is to get God to remember his good works. You know that Job has been pleading with God for an explanation for why he is suffering. He has insisted that there is not a particular sin or sins that, that can account for it. And Eliphaz's perspective on Job is that Job... He must be thinking that he can win God's favor by his righteousness. What about the other side of the scale? Is it always the case that the troubles in life are because the scale has tipped the other direction from so many sins? Well, this is clearly what Eliphaz thinks, according to verses 4 and 5. He says, is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. So Eliphaz here is assuming that God is reproving Job and judging Job and that the only basis for doing so is evil, sin. Meanwhile, Eliphaz is right about the fact that God does judge our evil, which is why we need salvation. 
Eliphaz is basically right. He, he's so close to getting things all the way right. He has some understanding of man's total depravity, uh, of our inability to earn God's favor by works. But in the end, he is insisting wrongly that Job's suffering is reproof and judgment. And since these things are always in response to sin, well, then Job has sinned. Still, we might argue that at least Eliphaz understands the bad news that lies behind a proper understanding of the good news. Because the bad news is that we do sin. We cannot merit God's favor. We do deserve judgment from which we cannot deliver ourselves. In fact, verses 10 and 11 highlight how sin just traps us in judgment. It says, therefore, snares are all around you and sudden terror overwhelms you or darkness so that you cannot see and a flood of water covers you. If we skip down to verse 30, it says there that God delivers even the one who is not innocent. Think of that. Yes, that's right. God saves sinners. God doesn't save innocent, sinless people. Of course, no one can rightly claim to have never sinned, but let's say a person claims to have suddenly stopped sinning. Even if you and I stopped sinning from this very moment forward, that would not make us innocent of sin. To be innocent would require me to no longer be sinning, but also to have never sinned. Or people who are not innocent, and that, that that's the category into which all of us fall are people who are not innocent capable of being saved can sinners experience God's favor Eliphaz rightly says yes people who experience God's favor are not innocent and even if you were innocent that would not impress God according to verses 2 and 3 you would be simply doing your duty our works are not meritorious and our sins do not void the possibility of our experiencing the favor of God. And so we see Eliphaz has a lot of things right. So then how do we experience God's favor? We have Eliphaz's answer in verses 21 through 30. Um, his understanding of the nature of salvation does need modification. He confuses salvation, as do Job's other friends, with a pleasant earthly life. But he also does explain salvation as as being about peace and fellowship with God. He definitely has a spiritual understanding of salvation. He's not thinking only in terms of earthly prosperity. So then let's consider what does he say? What does Eliphaz say as the way to experience God's favor? Well, he says there are three things you must do. Verse 21, agree with God. Verse 22, receive instruction from his mouth. And verse 23, return to the Almighty. And that is a fairly good description of the things that are required of sinners if we would be saved. To agree with God is a call to submit to God, to stop fighting God, to come to terms with the fact that he is God and what he says is truth and we are to accept it as such. Now, Eliphaz here doesn't flesh out the content of what agreeing with God involves, but I would suggest that what Eliphaz is talking about is what we find in the New Testament when, when we are called there to confess our sins and to confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord and the Son of God. Now, Old Testament believers could not confess their faith in Jesus because he had not yet come, but they could confess their need of a Savior, one provided by God, who would be 
who, who would be um, who would come as the Messiah. But now that Jesus has come, we are to agree with God that he is the Messiah, sent to be the atoning lamb who takes away our sins. The word confess, you understand, means to say along with. It means basically to agree with God. So that when we confess our sins, we are saying along with God what he says about our sins. Well, what does he say? Well, he tells us in his word that our sin deserves his judgment. He tells us what sin is. He defines sin for us as a violation of his law. Uh, He defines it as rebellion against him. He tells us that sin separates us from him and that the only way to be cleansed of of our sin is through Jesus Christ, suffering and dying in our place. So to confess our sins is to say along with God that we need a Savior and that we cannot save ourselves. To confess Jesus to be our Lord and Savior and the Son of God is to agree with God about who Jesus is, what he came to do, namely that he is the divine Son of God and that he is the Creator and that he deserves our trust and obedience and who calls us to receive his righteousness. Do you agree with God about what he says concerning your sin and need of a Savior, and that Jesus is that Savior? That is indeed what you are called to do. Eliphaz is right. And he confirms what he has in mind when he also calls Job to receive instruction from God's mouth and lay up his words in his heart. Because the truth that we are to confess Because we agree with it is the truth from God, the truth that is recorded in his word, the Bible. This is where we learn the truth about ourselves as sinners and the need we have of a Savior and about the provision for us made by Jesus Christ. And then verse 23 gets at the heart of what Eliphaz is envisioning when he calls Job to return to the Almighty. That word return in the Old Testament is one of the words for repentance, but a word that also implies faith. You see, repentance is a turning. It's not simply a matter of feeling sorry about one's sins, although that is certainly part of it, but it involves a radical change in your life, turning from the paths of sin, recognizing sin as rebellion, recognizing that it makes you worthy of God's judgment, and turning from sin to God, to his son, the Lord Jesus, in faith, out of a desire to please him, out of a longing to be in relationship with him. <coughs> and Eliphaz lays out that in the way of agreeing with God and receiving instruction from his word and repenting of sin, there will be peace. Good will come to you, he says. You will be built up. Verse 26 describes a relationship with God where your delight is in him. You are in this relationship of love and fellowship with him where your sins no longer stand between you. And uh, this is depicted by being able to lift up your face to God. It seems to be an expression referring to how you can look God in the eye. Think of it, you can be in God's holy presence and look him in the eye without any concern for harm. Meanwhile, you can pray to God and know that he will hear you. And not just in the sense that he knows what you pray. God certainly knows the content of every prayer of every person in the world, but To hear your prayer means that God's loving concern is directed toward you, that he wants to answer your prayers as your loving Heavenly Father. 
and that you are in a love relationship with God is exemplified by what is described there in verse 27b of you paying your vows. Part of being in a saving relationship with God, a covenant relationship, is this mutual love for one another. God loves you, but yet you also love him. There's a devotion to God from the heart where you're even willing to make vows to him. It's appropriate to make commitments to God. Now, you certainly should not make vows you can't keep. But vows involving commitments to worship and obedience can be ways that you show your love for God. Verses 29 and 30 are verses that are a bit difficult to understand. For when they are humbled, you say it is because of pride, but he saves the lowly. He delivers even the one who is not innocent will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. I think we need to keep in mind the context. And if you do so, a reasonable interpretation is that here Job is envisioned you know, having, uh, uh, having agreed with God, having received instruction, having returned to the Almighty, that he is now a blessing to others. Witnessing and leading others to salvation is also a part of life of devotion to God. And what is in view are people who are humbled by the trials of life. And Job's response to them is that, uh, that this is God's response to their pride. And while explaining this to them, he adds the good news, though, that God saves the lowly. It's good to be humbled, right, when it leads us to seek salvation from God. And verse 30 is true to the gospel and how God doesn't save the innocent. Those who are saved are always those who were once proud but were humbled. It's when sinners are humbled that they agree with God, receive instruction, return to the Almighty. So how does Eliphaz end this chapter? He tells Job that sinners will be delivered through the cleanness of his hands. Which I think is simply a way of saying that in the process of saving sinners, God uses godly people. He uses people who love God, who have clean hands as a way of referring to how they are devoted to living lives of holiness. And uh, in the whole, we can agree with Eliphaz. It's when he is here calling Job to really first-time repentance. When, when it, it, he, He's calling Job to repentance as, as, as an unbeliever. That's why are we referring to, to Eliphaz focusing on the wrong audience? He thinks that Job is an unbeliever walking into worship off the streets when Job is actually a member of the choir. Well, the verses in the middle of this chapter, verses 6 through 20, are where we find Eliphaz openly accusing Job of what he has done. The other men have spoken of Job's sin indirectly. We have known that they're talking about Job, but they don't do what Job, what uh, Eliphaz now does. He has said that Job's evil is abundant. There's no end to his iniquities. And Eliphaz actually has the courage, or that's not the right word. Um, he has the gall to get into the details of what he believes that sin is. <clears throat> he says in verse beginning at verse 6 for you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing you've stripped the naked of their clothing you have given no water to the weary to drink you have withheld bread from the hungry the man with power possessed the land and the favored man lived in it you have sent widows away empty 
and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. I'll explain a little bit for a moment this accusation of exacting, the, uh, this exacting of pledges from his brothers for nothing. Normally when there was a business agreement involving a loaning of money, the person loaning the money wanted a pledge that he would be paid back. And the person receiving the money was to offer then some kind of collateral. And often a poor person would hand over his cloak, though the law of God said that that cloak was to be given back to him each night so that the poor man would have a way to keep warm when he slept at night. Well, this is in the background. And Eliphaz probably means one of two things as he accuses Job of exacting um, and taking these pledges for nothing. He may mean... Uh, rather literally, that there was no business agreement, that there was no loan given, and that Job simply stole from people the kinds of things that would have been given and pledged, but all under the guise who understand that he was just getting what was due. So, for example, perhaps Job took people's cloaks while, they, uh, while claiming that they owed him money, which would fit the accusation that he strips the naked of their clothing. Or it could be that, he, uh, that the pledges that he kept when people couldn't pay back their loans way exceeded the value of what he loaned. So that what he loaned to them was as nothing in comparison. So Job would, for example, lend somebody 25 cents and then when they couldn't pay it back, he would take their $20 shirt off their back. Well, the list of horrors goes on. When people were thirsty and hungry, desperate for the basics of life, he wouldn't give them anything. He had land and power and popularity, but yet didn't use his position to help others, even the most vulnerable people of society, orphans and widows. Verse 23 says that Job is acting in unjust ways. He says the need for him to remove injustice far from his tents. Verses 24 and, and 25, Job, Job is told to cast aside his idolatry. He's accused of coveting gold instead of coveting God. Eliphaz doesn't hold back from boldly saying, this is the evil kind of person Job is. In verses 12 and following, he even accuses Job of taking a very rebellious stance toward God. In fact, choosing the, a very well-worn path of the wicked. So Eliphaz presents God as being high in the heavens there in verse 12, an expression that has us picture God as taller than all of the universe, even the highest stars. The point is that he is able to look down on the entire world that he has created and can see everything that happens. Nothing escapes his notice. Meanwhile, Job, Eliphaz claims, has the view of God's transcendence, transcendence that's presented in verses 13 and 14, that God is so far above his created world and is so far away in heaven that he doesn't even see what's going on in the world. This is, Eliphaz ex explains, the common thinking of the wicked. Psalm 73, one expresses it in much the same way as here. How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? These are the kind of people that Job is supposedly joined. People that don't want God's fellowship who say to God, depart from us. They want to sin. They are convinced that God can't do anything to them anyway because he doesn't have the knowledge or the power to do so. But in fact, as Eliphaz explains, it was God who brought them down before their time. It was God who had filled their houses to begin with with good things, 
but they refused to acknowledge his goodness and to thank him for it, and so God took it all away in judgment. And so Eliphaz distances himself from these wicked people. He he includes Job in that category. He says in verse 18b, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. And the emphasis, I think, would be on the word there, me. Because Job has said, has said just in the previous chapter, chapter 21, verse 16, the counsel of the wicked is far from me. So Job has, has stated that, 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 that fact, um, his perspective, and uh, Eliphaz is now taking the words of Job and saying, no, the, in fact, the counsel of the wicked is far from me. And uh, he explained the counsel, uh, Job did back in 21, he explained the counsel of the wicked as wanting God uh, to depart from them, uh, them not wanting to know God's ways, not wanting to serve God, finding no reason to pray to God because uh, they don't believe that he's going to benefit them in any way. And in the end, thinking that all of their prosperity has nothing to do with God, it's all their own doing. And Job says in chapter 21 that he rejects all of that counsel, all of that thinking. But Eliphaz now lumps Job with the wicked and says he is the one who is rejecting the counsel of the wicked. Accepting and living out the counsel of the wicked is what accounts for the prosperous wicked losing their status like Job has. Job can make any number of claims of innocence, but in the end what has happened to him, Eliphaz says, has has proven that Job has chosen to side with the wicked. And Eliphaz's testimony is that when the righteous see God's enemies, um, as they are cut off and their possessions consumed by fire, there is gladness, and that's the way it ought to be. God mocks, God laughs at the wicked who think that they can avoid his judgments. And the point is, shouldn't we also have the same attitude? Now here he doesn't specifically mention Job by name, but the implications are clear. And by lumping Job with those uh, that we are glad to see fall, Eliphaz is admitting that he does not feel sorry for Job. Job is clearly a horrible sinner because what has happened to Job is consistent with how God treats evil people. And it's interesting to note that Eliphaz's theology allows the wicked to prosper. If you think about it, he does allow for that. The caveat is that it's only for a time, and yet isn't that subjective? How long is too long? Well, what, what, when is it considered to be uh, short and, and before its time? If a wicked man has power and owns land and is favored in the land, as Job is described as being, that just doesn't happen overnight. Building wealth and power can take decades. And for the wicked to be snatched away before their time seems to be open to interpretation, and yet we get the point saying the prosperity of the wicked doesn't last. Job's prosperity didn't last, therefore Job is wicked. Eliphaz minces no words. Job is a wicked man. He's an adversary of God. He's a man worthy of mockery, the kind of, of, of man that brings rejoicing to the righteous when he falls. Nevertheless, Eliphaz doesn't write Job off as the other guys have. He demonstrates that he actually cares for Job and that he has hope for Job. Eliphaz demonstrates something of the New Testament love for sinners by calling Job to repentance. Notice his worldview, that is Eliphaz's worldview, allows for a man as evil as he believes Job to be to actually experience salvation, which is commendable. 
It demonstrates some understanding of the gospel because the good news is that no matter what you have done, no matter how wicked you have demonstrated yourself to be, there is forgiveness in Christ if you will but seek him in repentance and faith. So Eliphaz, you are right. God delivers even the one who is not innocent. Indeed, no one who is delivered is innocent. If we were innocent, we wouldn't need deliverance. But we find Eliphaz in an odd place. On the one hand, he's wrong about Job. Job is not guilty. He offers no proof of these accusations. And Job has consistently denied all such accusations. Job had a great reputation um, that with the onslaught of his suffering has been ignored. So in making these accusations, Eliphaz is actually a very unjust and wicked man. On the other hand, we commend Eliphaz for understanding salvation by grace enough to hold out the hope of forgiveness for a man like Job that he considers to be the worst of sinners. This mixture of truth and falsehood, of virtue and vice, is true of all of us in this world. We have blind spots, we have inconsistencies, which is why you and I need to be constantly receiving instruction from God's mouth, evaluating what we believe to make sure that we agree with God and regularly returning to the Almighty. And then as Eliphaz describes, you can know you are in fellowship with God and you will delight in God. Now Eliphaz thinks that this fellowship can be gauged by how well your earthly life is going, but Job knows better. His faith tells him that God's love is not to be measured by earthly prosperity. And Job is right. God's love is independent of us. It's, it's grounded in a reality outside of ourselves and outside of the ups and downs of this life. Our salvation is grounded in God's free grace and in the righteousness of Christ. So is Job the wrong audience? Well, from our perspective, he is a believer. And from that point of view, we might think he's the wrong audience. But really, we all need to hear the gospel. Every single day, we need to hear the gospel to build us up in our faith, to remind us of our Savior, to remind us of our need, even each day to repent of our sin, not in order to save ourselves for the first time, but living out our, our faith and our salvation. From Eliphaz's perspective, Job is a wicked sinner when he's actually a justified sinner. He's wrong about Job. But of course, wicked sinners are the right audience for the gospel. For Christ came not to save the righteous, but to save sinners. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you, Father, for the good news that there is salvation for those who are not innocent, that there is salvation even for those who are like, as Eliphaz believed Job to be. We know that Job was justified in your sight, a, a godly man, but Father, uh, we understand that Eliphaz is right, that if Job had actually been as evil as he was believed to be, that there would be salvation even for someone like him in the way of repentance, in the way of, of accepting what God says and, and receiving his word and repenting. Father, we thank you that indeed there is provision for us poor sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that even though our good works cannot negate our evil works, uh, there is forgiveness through Christ. There is uh, 
in, in Christ a way for us to, to justly be received in your sight as those righteous. So, Father, we thank you for um, the fact that even though we are totally depraved in sin and unable to save ourselves, there is a way of salvation that you have provided in your Son. And uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.